You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. And now with your Bibles open to the book of Hebrews, please, Hebrews chapter 10. I'll pray before we begin. Our Father, we confess and acknowledge that if it is without the work of your Spirit, we would never be able to understand spiritual truth or how that truth should apply to our lives or what we are to do in response to that truth. We need the work of your Spirit to accomplish this in our hearts. And we pray that you would do so this morning, that you would use your Word to comfort us and encourage us, to equip us, to sanctify us, by the, you would sanctify us by that truth that you would strengthen our hearts together and that you would help us to see Christ and His glory and the glory of what He has done in the pages of this book. We pray that you would cause your Holy Spirit to open our eyes and our hearts that we may see and understand these things for the glory of Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. We are here in Hebrews chapter 10, and last week was really one long introduction to today's sermon. And we got to the end of that time last week. It was an overview of the larger context. So we noted the beginning at verse 19. The author is now transitioning into a section of the epistle where he is going, it's going to be heavy on exhortation. And so last week we just kind of did an overview and set the table of what we're going to be looking at in the weeks ahead. Well, let's be honest. In the years ahead, as we finish up the book of Hebrews, um, as we begin to work through the exhortation section of this, we we kind of needed to have an idea of what, where the author is going in this last section, and we saw that he is he is really the the I should say that the the central exhortation of this last section of Hebrews is the exhortation to hold fast, to stand strong, to stay firm, and to hold fast to our confidence and our hope that we have in Christ. This is the goal of everything he has been he's been writing. He's writing to these people to encourage them not to be shaken by persecution, not to be shaken by the hostility of the world, not to be shaken by their family and friends abandoning them, not to be shaken by tribulations and trials or even discipline from the Lord, but that they are to hold fast and to stand strong to the very end. That would be the very evidence that their faith is genuine. And those whose faith is not genuine, those who make a mere profession of faith in Christ, who haven't had experienced no actual regeneration and no true born-again experience, those people will very quickly fall away in the face of temptations and trials and tribulation and the hostility of the world. So the central exhortation for the rest of the book of Hebrews is to stand fast. And we even see it here in our immediate context, which we're going to get to here in just a moment. So that was kind of the overview of the whole the whole last chunk of Hebrews. And then we focused in more closely on specifically in chapter 10, and we saw that after the the author finishes his theological argument at verse 18, he immediately demonstrates or gives to us two, two possible reactions to the truth. This truth that Jesus Christ is our high priest, that he has made a sacrifice for sin, that he has entered into heaven where he sits at the Father's right hand and makes intercession for us. Those glorious truths, there are two ways of responding to that. The first is as a believer would respond in verses 19 through 25. Skip that for just a moment. The second is how an unbeliever would respond in verses 26 through 31. That unbeliever's response in verse 26 through 31 constitutes one, the fourth of the five warning passages in the book of Hebrews. 
It is a warning against those who would step away from the truth and respond by walking away and considering as unholy or inadequate the blood of Christ and thus would insult the Spirit of grace. So there's a very stern warning later on to those who might see the truth that he has presented in the epistle and then turn and walk away from that. And the way that a believer would respond to that is given in verses 19 to 25. And here he is addressing them as brethren. You see that in verse 19. Therefore, brethren. He's addressing them as brethren. These are people whom he he knows are not only probably his ethnic kinship, they're Jews, but they're also brothers in Christ. And he is saying to them, since these things are true, verses 19 and 20 and 21, therefore we are to do the following things. Verse 22, let us draw near. Verse 23, let us hold fast. And verse 24, let us encourage one another as, even more as they see the day drawing near. So there's those three let us statements, three exhortations. Here's, here's what you are to do. Is Since this is true, that Christ has given you access to the throne of God, and since it is true that we have a great high priest over the house of God, Therefore, we are to draw near to Him, we are to hold fast to Him, and we are to encourage others to do the same, to draw near and to hold fast. Those are the three applications that He gives to believers. So that was our overview last week, and now we're just getting into verse 19 and 20, and actually we're going to get through the end of verse 21 today, looking at the things that He says are true. These are really summary statements of what He has covered in chapter 6 through 10. Let's read it together, verse 19. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, and verse 22 is the application, let us hold fast. So I just want you to notice just those two since statements. Since it is true that we have confidence to enter the holy place, and since it is true, verse 21, that we have a great high priest over the house of God. Those are two great advantages that we have that Old Testament saints did not have. And so we're going to spend our time today looking at these two advantages and really comparing them to what the Old Testament saints had and expected under the Old Covenant. And you're going to see that what we have is far, far better. So he's drawing here upon some facts that he has already established back from chapter 6 through chapter 10, the middle of chapter 10. He's drawing upon those theological points that he has been making back then, and he's really summarizing it down to these two things. You and I have two great advantages. We have direct and personal access to God, and we have a high priest who represents us in heaven. These are two things that were inconceivable to an Old Testament saint, two things that Old Testament saints did not have. First, Direct and personal access to God. Notice in verse 19, he says, Since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. Now that word confidence is a bit of an interesting word. Its definition here is, it's it's not exactly translated the way that we probably should take it here with the translation confidence, because that word confidence means a boldness or a courage. It was used to describe a free-spokenness, a freedom of speech, or an openness, an unhinderedness of freedom or liberty. That's the idea behind it. Actually, an access. And the idea is not necessarily to be understood uh, subjectively as we might feel. I feel confident to do something. But objectively, as something that is true of us, we have this confidence. We have this access, this freedom, this unhinderedness to come right into the the throne of heaven. So there is a, a subjective way of understanding this idea of confidence and an objective. And the author here intends us to understand this, not as what we feel subjectively to be true, but of what is objectively true regardless of how we feel. Namely, that something is true. We have access. We have this boldness to enter into the throne room of God. So let me describe the difference between a subjective feeling and an objective fact. When I was a kid... Um, 
preteen kid, I got a job mowing lawns. And I did this as soon as I could push a lawnmower. And I figured out that I could earn money pushing a lawnmower. I was pushing a lawnmower for money somewhere in the county any day that there was a lawn growing. I was, I was after it. So I got this job mowing a lawn for a man who lived about three quarters of a mile from me. He lived in Spokane, actually, but he had a house on the beach, on the lake, about three quarters of a mile from where I grew up. And I went down and, and, uh, interviewed as it were, or auditioned or whatever you want to call it. I mowed his lawn. I said, what is this worth to you? And he said, it's worth X amount. And I said, I'll take it. And then I did this for a few weeks. And finally he said, look, um, you do this. I, I like having you come down here during the week because he lived in Spokane. He would come up on the weekend. So he would be there Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. He liked having his lawn mowed when he showed up to spend the week at the beach house. So he said, I like having you here during the week and right prior to the weekend. The more you show up, the better because I don't want the house just sitting there without any activity going around it because it's, otherwise it's just sitting there. And it was kind of out by itself before that area really got developed. So he said, if you, if you want to come down and use the beach, you can anytime. You and your friends, you and your family come down and just use my, and he had a nice dock. It was a, like an L-shaped dock in a boat. He had a floating dock with a slide, a curly slide that kind of went down and it was beautiful. And this was a huge upgrade for me as a kid. I mean, a huge upgrade because I, I grew up swimming in the slough over here in Boyer Slough. And the water sewer treatment plant dumped its treated affluent about a quarter of a mile upstream of where I swam. And I drank, swam that water all growing up. So the idea of having free access to come to a lake house anytime that I wanted and to swim in nice, pure, clean water was, that was a huge upgrade. And not only did I swim, let me just for a second, not only did I swim in the slough, that was like my stomping grounds. I did everything in the slough. It was seaweed. It was, uh, catfish, it was perch, it was tench, it was all the horrible stuff. And we used to actually go back, raft back into the place where the water actually flowed out of the treatment plant into the water, and we would swim right in there. So people say, are you worried about the virus at all? No. No, I'm not worried about the virus. What I was worried about is that one of my kids would be born with six toes or three arms. Virus didn't bother me at all. So this is a huge upgrade. And Mr. Brungy told me, uh, anytime you want, you can come down and use the beach. You, your friends, your cousins, your family, anybody. They just have to be with you. You have to be the one down here. I don't want your friends coming down here. So I, I would go down by themselves. So I would go down there. I could bring anybody that I wanted down to the beach to go swim. We'd go down swimming. It was a three-quarter of a mile bike ride for us. So we'd go down there swimming almost every day, sometimes multiple times a day. And sometimes even when he was there, he'd be happy if we showed up and we would go swimming and enjoy the beach. That's just not something that you do today, right? Now, Objectively, objectively, I had access to go there anytime that I wanted. Subjectively, I felt complete freedom to do so. And I did. Now, at first, I was a bit skittish, a bit skeptic. I thought, do, should I really go down and take advantage of his dock and take advantage of his house and take advantage of his, the beach when Mr. Brungy's not there? Should I really go do that? So at first, I had a lot of hesitation. That was how I felt. Objectively, Mr. Brungy was happy if I went down there. He wanted me there, using it as often as I wanted to. I had free access. Now, what was true of me is that I had complete access to use that beach anytime I wanted. There's also a parallel here, by the way, that my friends could only use it if I was there. In the same way, we only have access to God's throne because Christ has gone ahead of us. We'll get to that later. So there's another parallel there. But I want you to see the difference between objective confidence and subjective confidence. Objectively, I had confidence and free access to come anytime that I want. Subjectively, I also felt the complete freedom to do that. Now, I've had other people who've said, anytime you need this or you want this, you just call, you ask, and you get to use it. And sometimes that happens, and we don't necessarily feel the freedom to use it, do we? 
Somebody might give us freedom to use something. We think, oh, I don't know. I just don't really feel that I should do that. I might be taking advantage of that person. Even though they might give me access to do that, we might not necessarily subjectively feel like we have the confidence and the freedom to go ahead and take advantage of that, do we? That's the difference between subjective confidence and objective confidence in the way that this word is used. Objectively, something is true of us. We have personal and direct access to the throne of God. Subjectively, how do we feel about that? It's not always that we feel like we can just walk into heaven's throne room and make our petitions before the Lord. Isn't that true? Isn't it true that sometimes we just feel like, "Mm, I'm not sure he wants to hear from me. It's been a while, or I'm not in a good place, or this happened yesterday and I lost my temper, or I sinned in such and such a way, maybe I should just stay away a while. Subjectively, our confidence might be minimized. Objectively, our access is all the same. Objectively, our access never changes. Because it's a new and living way. So the author here is not describing the freedom that we have in how we feel about coming in, a feeling of freedom. He is describing here objectively what is true, regardless of how we feel about it, that you and I have full and free personal access, direct access to the throne room of heaven itself. That is objectively true, regardless of whether we feel confident about it or not. And it is objectively true because of what Christ has done. And we have freedom to enter the holy place, verse 19 says, since we have confidence to enter the holy place. Now he's using here Old Testament language and symbolism that goes back to the tabernacle. So you remember the tabernacle was the tent in the wilderness. The back was closed off, but there was a veil at the front. And as you walked inside the tabernacle, on the right you would see the table of showbread, and on the left the candlestick, or the, 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 can't, yeah, candlelight, the candelabra. I forget what it's called. What's that? Menorah. No, that's not it. You should get somebody who preaches and knows a little bit more about what they're talking about. <laughs> and as you come toward the back, there would be the altar of incense there. And then there was the veil that separated the front chamber of the tabernacle with the, from the Holy of Holies. Behind the veil was the Ark of the Covenant. And that veil separated only by inches the Ark of the Covenant from the altar of incense. And the priest had to tend the altar of incense every day, but only on one day of year, only one man could enter behind that veil. And he entered behind that veil, not with anybody else or with anything else other than the incense that he was to bring from the altar outside the tabernacle and the blood of the sacrifice that he was to bring behind that. And there he would sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice on the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant, and then he would hurry out of there. He had access on one day, one man, because of the blood of the sacrifice. So when the author here says in verse 19, since we have confidence to enter the holy place, he is already, he is alluding to that inner chamber of the tabernacle, not the outer chamber where the furniture was, but the inner chamber where the Ark of the Covenant was, where Yahweh himself dwelt between, or his glory was manifestly seen between the wings of the cherub over the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant. That was the holy place. Now, the author is already in the book of Hebrews likened the holy place to heaven because he has already drawn a connection. That holy place where God dwelt amongst his people that was accessible only by one person on one day of the year, that holy place is likened to heaven in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 to 12. When he says, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. And in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 and 12, the author is likening heaven to that inner sanctum of the tabernacle. That place behind the veil was a picture of heaven. God dwelt there. And that veil that separated men from the dwelling place of God was a reminder constantly every day of sin. 
that no man can approach God. No man can step behind that veil. There's only one exception. He has to come by blood. And he has to come by blood, himself having been offered a sacrifice for himself. He had to go once back to offer a sacrifice of the blood for the sins of him and his family. And then he would come back out, offer another sacrifice for the sins of the nation and go back there. And only on that one day of the year could he do that. And that, that constant, that veil constantly hanging there was a reminder of sin and the barrier that stands between us and God. No man can approach God. No man can see God. No man can draw near to God because of our sin. So blood had to be offered to give us access to the Holy of Holies. So in verse 19, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. But we don't enter just behind the veil, but we enter into the reality itself, into heaven itself. We have access to the throne room of God. So we're not talking here in verse 19 about entering into the physical shadow of heaven, but into the real spiritual reality of heaven itself. We have access to the throne of God. We have access to the greater thing, just heaven itself, not just the symbol. And this type of language, by the way, remember, this would be unthinkable to a Jew. There's one thing that no Jew ever expected to have happen in their life, and that was for the high priest to bring them into the tabernacle and say, go ahead, step behind the veil into the presence of God. Or even better yet, hey, I'm, I'm heading back there. Do you want to come with me? No Jew would have ever presumed to do that because he, he would know that he'd be struck dead for doing it. So the whole idea of a sinner entering into the very presence of God himself, that was almost inconceivable to an Old Testament saint. They couldn't imagine that. They could only approach God through a mediator, a high priest, and only then he would do it on their behalf once a year. That veil always separated them from God. It's unthinkable to a Jew because it really is unthinkable to a sinner. Why should the God of all of heaven, the holy and righteous one, why should he give us access to come and stand before him and to pray or to praise or to petition him for anything? Why should the holy one do that? Is not our sin heavy enough and the weight of it serious enough to keep us barred from heaven forever? Certainly is, isn't it? All my iniquity, my lying, my thieving, my blasphemy, my covetousness, my idolatry, my horrible thoughts, wicked in every way, all of my gossip and slander, every wicked and evil deed that I've done, every wicked and evil thought that I have ever thunk in my head in all of my life, all heaped together and added together, and God knows it all. It's all written down in a book. He misses none of it. He sees every thought that I think is hidden from everybody. He sees it, and He knows it, and He knows the motives of my heart my heart, and he knows everything I have ever done in broad daylight or in darkness. He knows everything I've ever wanted to do but lacked the opportunity to do. Every wicked deed thought of, every wicked deed conceived and not executed, every wicked deed ever executed, he knows it all perfectly. What sinner, understanding the weight of that sin, would ever presume to step into the presence of heaven itself and to petition the God of all of the universe, the God who knows his every wickedness and sin? What sinner could ever do that? Do you feel the weight of that? You know why this is so unthinkable? There's only one way you can, and that is if blood has been shed to pay the price for your sin. Then a priest who has shed that blood can take that blood back and say, this is the payment for the sin, and he can gain us access. Under the Old Covenant, the Holy of Holy and the priest and the animal sacrifice, it was all a picture of what was to come. And that is that there would come a perfect priest, 
not of the line of Aaron, but of the order of Melchizedek, a perfect priest who himself would offer a sacrifice, but not an animal sacrifice, his own blood, his own body. And then having offered that, he would step behind the veil into heaven itself. And if that's not amazing enough, he would then beckon us to come, to join him, to step behind the veil, enter into heaven itself, free, personal, and direct access to the very throne of God, before the very God who weighs all of our sin and knows every last one of them. But because Christ has shed His blood and the sin has been atoned for, all of that sin is taken out of the way and the veil, as it were, is taken down. It is torn in two. It no longer is a barrier to us between heaven and us. So, verse 19 says, Since we have confidence to enter that holy place, and we do so by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way. This is a... This is an interesting phrase, and I think that it is a lovely one, a lovely one. By a new and living way. That word new, there are a lot of words that are, that are translated new in the New Testament, right? We talk about being the new self, Ephesians chapter 4, to put on the new self. We talk about being a new creation in Jesus Christ. That's not this word new. Talk about the new covenant. This author has actually used the word new previously to speak of the new covenant, but that's not the same word that's used here for new. This word that is translated new here in verse 19, a new and living way, sorry, verse 20, a new and living way, this word for new is only used one time in all of the New Testament, and it's right here. And here's the interesting thing about that word. The word is a prefix with a root word, and the root word means slain or slaughtered or killed, and the prefix means freshly, recently, or lately. So if you look it up in a, con, in a, in a concordance or a dictionary, the tr- literal transliteration of the word would be freshly slain or recently slain, recently slaughtered. Now, eventually the idea of sacrifice got dropped from the meaning of the word, and the word just simply came to be used as a synonym for new or recent or something that is fresh. But it's only used one time in the New Testament. And that is to say the author could have used a lot of words that could be translated new, but he chose this one. And why did he choose this one? Because it's in the context of sacrifice. And I think that the author, I'm, I'm relatively certain, that the author has in mind the very thing that he's been talking about, the blood and the body of Christ. And so this is the recently slaughtered living way. You and I have access through the recently slaughtered living way. The new and living way. It is the living way because Christ himself is living. And of course, this is a reference to his resurrection. You and I do not count upon an animal sacrifice to gain us entrance to God, but we count upon the one who was freshly slaughtered and he lives. And he as our high priest has entered into heaven itself. Our way that we trust, the way that takes us into heaven itself, is the recently slaughtered and living one. That's a beautiful picture. He's the one that leads to life, and by him we have access, by his blood, which he inaugurated for us, verse 20, through the veil that is his flesh. That's an interesting phrase, through the veil that is his flesh, and there's a lot of ink that's been spilt on this. Because he's obviously referencing the veil again that stood between the outer chamber of the tabernacle and the Holy of Holies, that veil that separated by a matter of only inches the the altar of incense from the Ark of the Covenant, which was behind that. It was only through that veil that the high priest again entered once a year and only on one day. And here he makes reference to that veil, but he says that is his flesh. Now here's the question, here's what makes this difficult to interpret. In what sense is the flesh of Jesus Christ a veil? Notice it says in verse 20, we enter by the new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. How is the flesh of Christ a veil? And this is the perplexing part. The veil was the thing that separated us from God. So in what way does the author mean to say that the flesh of Jesus Christ in his incarnation separated us from God or kept us from God? 
And some people have taken that and tried to make all kinds of illusions and connections. They say, well, the flesh of Jesus then had to be ripped or torn in order to just like the the veil of the temple had to be torn from top to bottom to give us access to God. And if the flesh of Jesus Christ had not been torn, then still His flesh would be a barrier to us from entering into heaven itself. So the barrier, sorry, the veil is a barrier. In what way is the flesh of Christ a barrier to us unless it is torn? That's what causes perplexion. I have a brief answer to it. I'm, I'm not sure. I wouldn't die for this, but I think that this is the best one. And here it is. The veil served not only as a barrier between men and God, but that veil was also the way into the Holy of Holies, was it not? It was a barrier, but it also marked the way. You could close those doors back there. Those doors serve two functions. They are a barrier to keep people out or people in, but they also mark the way into something. In the same way, the veil in the tabernacle and later on in Solomon's temple, that veil was a barrier to keep everybody out, and it symbolized the separation between us and God because of our sin. And that veil was torn in two when Jesus died on a cross. That veil was torn from top to bottom and uh, symbolizing the access that we now have. But it is not the barrier feature of the veil that is in mind, in the mind of the author. I think it is the fact that it marked the way. So he is simply here using the veil as another reference to the way into the Holy of Holies because you had to go through the veil. So he has inaugurated for us by his blood. We enter by his blood. We enter by a new or freshly slaughtered and living way, which he inaugurated for us, and we enter through that veil that is the way into the Holy of Holies. And that way into the Holy of Holies is through His flesh. His flesh had to be sacrificed. His blood had to be shed. And in that way, through that sacrifice, which was His body and His blood, that complete sacrifice itself marked the way and gains us access through, as it were, behind the veil, where Christ is now and where He has already gone. So that, I think, is the, the, the solution to it. There is only one way into the Holy of Holies. And Christianity is an exclusive religion in this sense, an exclusive faith. There is no other way to God except through Jesus Christ. And some people shy away from that. Some some people are upset by that. Some people even try and apologize for God for that. You say, there is no other way to get to heaven except through Jesus Christ. You can't get there through Muhammad or Joseph Smith or any any mediums or spiritists or any other path, not through your good deeds, not through any other way can you have access into the throne room of God and into eternal life. It is through Christ and Christ alone. And some people, some Christians say that and then feel like they have to apologize for God. I know I don't really personally like that, but that's just what Scripture says. And so I just got to tell you what it says. I think we should embrace that and double down on it. And proclaim it as a glorious thing. There is a way. Right? We ought to be thankful that there is at least one. And it is through the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. And it is an exclusive way because only one person has done what is necessary to gain us access to the throne room of God. Only one person has done the deed. So if you have a disease and there is only one cure... And you go into a doctor and he says, you have this disease because you swam in a slough when you were a kid, so therefore you have this, and there is one cure for this. It is this medication. Would you, like a fool, say, well, one medication? How narrow-minded and bigoted and exclusive is that one medication? I want to be able to take multiple medications. I want to be able to offer to everybody all kinds of medications to solve their dilemma. That's not how it works. If there is one cure, there is one cure for the disease. Our disease is sin. Our problem is separation from God. 
Only one person has done what is necessary to solve our problem and to cure our disease by raising us from the dead, and that is Jesus Christ. So yes, there is only one way, and I say it gladly, happily. That's what Scripture teaches. And the good news is that there is a way. There is a way to have my sins forgiven. There is a way to be made righteous. There is a way to have eternal life and to enter into heaven itself. But it is only through the Lord Jesus Christ, by His blood, by the freshly slaughtered and living way, through the veil that is His flesh, that is the access that we have into the throne room of God itself, of God Himself. So this describes the access that we have, a free and unfettered, continual, freely spoken access. We come right into heaven itself. Our entrance is secured for us because of what Christ has done, right into the Holy of Holies. If we were speaking in the language of the Old Testament text, we would be able to step behind the veil and behold with our own faces the Shekinah glory of Yahweh Himself, positioned between the wings of the cherub, over the Ark of the Covenant, over the mercy seat, we would be able to behold that glory. That was just a small token in the Old Covenant. It was just a small token of God's promise that His people will dwell with Him. And now because of what Christ has done, someday you and I will stand before Him and we'll see Him face to face. And we will not be consumed. No man today can see God and live because we are not glorified. But because of what Christ has done, He has taken our sins out of the way, He will glorify us and He will fit us for heaven. And when we stand before Him, we will be completely righteous because of what Christ has done and only because of what Christ has done. And when we are completely righteous and we are made fit for heaven with that glorified spirit in that glorified state and eventually a glorified body, you and I will be able to stand, as it were, right before the Shekinah glory and behold it fully and to enjoy it and to receive from Him delights and pleasures and joys and fellowship everlastingly and forevermore. We have free and unfettered access to God. Second, we have a great high priest who is in heaven. Verse 21, we have a great high priest over the house of God. And he's just reminding us of what he has told us about the Melchizedekian priesthood of Christ, that our high priest, he is impeccably qualified. He is faithful. He is sinless. He is living. He is eternal. He is a permanent priest. He ever lives. He is able to save. Powerful. He is the divine son. He's the one who upholds all of creation by the word of his power. He is immutable and he does not change. He has finished his work. He is a perfect priest. He is a perfect intercessor. He has done a perfect work. He himself was totally sinless, and he stood in the place of all those for whom he died, and he represents them even today. And now that high priest, having finished that perfect work, now goes into heaven and offers a perfect intercession for his people. And now he has perfected forever all those who are sanctified. He has done that work and completed it and gone into heaven itself. And the author is just causing us to to reflect again upon these two great truths. You and I have access to the throne room of God because we have a high priest who has already gone ahead and he sits now in the throne room of God at the Father's right hand, waiting until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. He ever lives to make intercession for us. And he beckons us to come and to enjoy the blessings and benefits of that unfettered and free, confident, bold access to His throne. All because of what He has done. He beckons us to come. And He has gone ahead for us, and because we are in Him positionally, He has taken us with Him. So we can say our citizenship is there, our life is there, our inheritance is there. Truly, everything that is most valuable to us is already there. And Christ is there. And He doesn't stand outside of the veil of heaven. He doesn't stand outside of heaven saying to us, now go on in, I think it'll be all right. 
I mean, I think my father would be okay with you. Why don't you go ahead and go in and, and give it a try? That's not the kind of access we have. He has gone ahead. First, Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19 and 20 says, This hope we have is an anchor for the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast and one which enters within the veil. Notice the language. We have a hope behind the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. What is the author saying? Christ has already gone ahead. He's already paved the way. He, by offering that sacrifice, has already stepped behind the veil. That is where your hope is. Sure and steadfast and immovable. Cling to that hope. It's already behind the veil. He is already there. And now the divine son says, come on in. And one day we're going to get to. That, that is a hope you can cling to. Now if it is true, since it is true, not if, but since it is true that we have bold access to the throne room of God, and since it is true that our high priest has gone there already as a forerunner for us, and that is where our hope is, since those two things are true, then there's three things that you and I ought to do. Draw near, hold fast, and encourage others to do the same. That's verses 22 through 25. Draw near. You see, if, if, if this is not true, if he, if he has not paved that way, if he has not gone behind the veil, then there is nothing for you to draw near to. If you don't believe that he has access and that he has granted you access, then you are not going to be motivated to draw near to him. But if you understand and you realize fully, he has already gone ahead. He has torn the veil in two. He has stepped into the presence of God. And now he welcomes me to come. He has given me that access. If you believe that in your heart of hearts, then the number one thing you need to do is draw near to him. Come to him. You and I have blessings which were unimaginable to Old Testament Jews. Christian, you enjoy something today that Moses, Noah, Abraham, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Jacob, none of them enjoyed what you have. None of them have what you have. You have been provided something under the new covenant that none of them could ever imagine being true. They, they couldn't approach God like you and I can approach God. They cannot draw near like you and I could draw near. They couldn't have confidence in, in, in their own righteousness and a high priest who ever lives to make intercession for them. They didn't know about any of these things. They lived under a different covenant, an old covenant, which was a picture of what was to come, and you and I enjoy the fullness of it. We have blessings and we enjoy an intimacy with God that David never had. David never had that access. David could never approach God like you and I can. That's amazing. I hope you understand how blessed you are. I hope you understand what God has provided for you in Jesus Christ. And it just so happens that these two things, direct access to God and a high priest in heaven, they are perfectly suited to meet our most fundamental need. And what is our most fundamental need? We need to have somebody who can draw us near to God, who can bring us to the Father. Because without a high priest who has offered that kind of a sacrifice, and without that kind of intercession, you and I can never approach God. Our most fundamental need is to have our sin issue dealt with. Because the weight of our sin is more than we can bear. And the wrath of God on us for our sin is exactly what we deserve. And if that is not taken out of the way, if sin is not removed, and the debt of that is not taken out of the way and accounted for, then you and I cannot approach Him, and we cannot have any confidence, and we cannot come into heaven, and we shall never see heaven. So what has God provided for us? 
the very thing that we most desperately needed, forgiveness of sins, infinite and perfect righteousness, and access to the throne of God. That is what it means to be perfected by the death of Christ. These are the things that he has given to us. The weight of our sin was more than we can bear, but Christ has taken it away. Glory to him. Glory to his name. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.